Now, I studied by the smart company, smartphone company um, called HTC. I found that one in four British adults use phone dating apps um, whilst still in a relationship with someone else. Now, in some senses, we hear such a statistic, we, there's nothing unusual about it. Uh, because as human beings, we all tend to struggle to give our hearts fully to other people in our lives. And of course, that's not without reason. I mean, all of us have trusted people who have later turned out just to disappoint us. Spouses, friends, co-workers, bosses do that quite often, actually. Politicians, even. And even churches, pastors, and just churches in general. We place our trust in them, and they disappoint us. In fact, it is a fact, actually, that the more we experience life, I think the more it becomes difficult for us to have wholehearted trust in people. Because our experience actually counts against new trust in people. And that's one reason we are half-hearted. The other reason we are half-hearted is because we actually live in a society that is based on a culture now of half-heartedness. Our society now, perhaps much different than before, uh, every, societies have always been affected. But the difference with us now, I think, is that in our society, we actually celebrate half-heartedness now. Uh, if you like being half-hearted, is the new normal. People actually now expect you not to give yourself to things fully. They expect you to be half-hearted in how you live. It's very interesting that when the Supreme Court recently uh, stopped a woman in her 60s from divorcing her husband because the reason she wanted to divorce her husband is because she just did not feel that she loves him anymore. And so she wanted a divorce in her 60s. The Supreme Court says, no, there's no such thing as no-fault divorce. And so they stopped it. But the public reaction to this was anger. How dare the Supreme Court tries to make this woman remain in a marriage if she's not happy? How dare they expect her to keep her vows? She's a free person. Uh, she, she, you know, she can decide what she likes. So in some sense, we are living in a society where what matters most is self-interest, human autonomy, free agency. Uh, so it's no surprise that actually us, part of this culture we live in, we are also... Believers or non-believers are just half-hearted in the things we do. It's partly culture. So partly we see it is just experience, partly it is culture why we are half-hearted. And there may be other reasons, but I want you to think that all of those reasons in some extent are proximate reasons. They are lesser reasons for why we are really half-hearted. The fundamental reason why we are half-hearted creatures is taught to us in the Bible. The Bible says we are half-hearted because God created us whole-hearted to be in a relationship with him, to love him alone. And God gave us his heart, so to speak, and in the Garden of Eden, we gave our heart back to God. But if you know your Bibles very well, you remember that something went seriously wrong. We rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. We chose ourselves rather than him. We became half-hearted towards him. And the result is that we are not just half-hearted towards God, 
we became half-hearted towards one another. The horizontal relationships that is broken in our lives is a result of something deeper that's broken, our vertical relationship with God. We now live half-hearted to God, and we live half-hearted towards one another. And here is why this matters. It matters because, you see, I can be half-hearted to Brother Hola or half-hearted to uh, Sister Dai. I can be half-hearted to people around me in how I commit to them. But we can't do that with God. God is our loving creator who created us to live with him. We have no choice but to be full-hearted to him. Not only because God demands that we should be whole-hearted to God, but because God deserves as our loving father to, be, to expect us to be wholehearted to him, to worship him in spirit and in truth, to give all our heart to him. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus is God walking through the pages of human history. So the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Do you have full-hearted devotion to Jesus? Jesus is God. Do you have full-hearted devotion to him? Or let me put it the other way around. Does Jesus have your heart? Jesus gives us our heart. Does he have your heart? Well, to help you answer this question, let us resume our journey in Mark chapter 3. As you know, we are currently in a study of Mark. We're going through Mark verse by verse. But we're in a special portion of Mark now. We have been looking at Jesus' choice of the 12 disciples. We've already had four sermons on this. And today we are now looking at Jesus' choice of the last disciple, uh, Judas Iscariot, in Mark chapter 3, verse 19. It says this, and Judas Iscariot, in the 16th starts off, it says he appointed the 12, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, and if we jump to verse 19, it says, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And I think this verse teaches us two important lessons, I think, on Jesus' heart towards us and what our hearts should be towards him. And so, in the brief time we have, I just want to make two quick observations from this verse. The first thing we learn from verse 19 here is that Jesus embraces his followers wholeheartedly. Jesus embraces his followers, those who come to him, wholeheartedly. No ifs, no buts. He gives us our hearts. Now, psychology experts, and I have to be careful what I say because we have a psychologist here, the psychology experts tell us that giving someone a hug has healthy benefits. Uh, Apparently, it increases the levels of oxytocin and reduces blood pressure. And as I thought about this interesting fact, it made me realize that perhaps this explains why David Cameron, in 2006, when he was in opposition, uh, came up with a policy of hugger hoodie. Uh, he says, you know, a good way to help youngsters struggling is that you should be going out there and giving them a hug. Uh, and uh, the policy didn't take off. But he believed that was a way to win gang members from their crime and so forth. It's just to go hug them. Our young people need hugs. I think there's some truth in that. Well, whatever you make of that, and you have to ask our psychologist, is this. Jesus also loves hugging hoodies. He does. 
Or to be more exact, Jesus has come to wholeheartedly embrace people who do not deserve his love. And we have seen this as we looked at the choice of the twelve disciples. We, we have seen Jesus choose Peter, who didn't deserve him, and actually messes up later. We've seen Jesus choose Simon the Zealot from, a, if you like, a terrorist background and bringing him in a hoodie. We've seen him choose a real buddy, Matthew the tax collector. We've seen him choose nobodies, people who don't deserve him. And now we come to verse 19. And we see it now. Jesus chooses Judas Iscariot. And he chose Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. I want to point out first of all there that the key word in this entire verse is the word and. And Judas Iscariot. It is an important word because it tells us that in order for us to understand verse 19, we have to understand it in the context of the verses that come before. The and is connecting us to what has been said before, the context of those verses. And the context is particularly verse 13, verse 14, and verse 15. And what will we learn about that? Well, when we read those verses, we should read them with Judas now in mind. When he says in verse 13, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. We should first of all realize that he's calling Judas as well, whom he desired. And when he goes on to say, and they came to him, we should understand that Judas came to him. And when we read in verse 14, he says, and he appointed the twelve. We should realize that Jesus appointed Judas. When we read that so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach, we should understand that Jesus is appointing Judas to be with Judas so that he might send Judas out to preach and have authority, in verse 15, to cast out demons. As you read that with Judas in mind, as one of the twelve, you learn three things. First of all, we see that Jesus here has personally called Judas and the rest of the twelve to be with him. Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him, to him, those whom he desired. Now when you are asking a lady to marry you, you send yourself, isn't it? In matters of love, you've got to go yourself. You can't send a middleman. Well, I did for my wife, but that was before I met her. That was after, I, well, that was before I met her, actually. Well, that was after I met her, yeah. That was after I met her and she was happy to, uh, to get married. Then, of course, culturally, you send a middleman to ask her and get married. But you don't do that at the beginning, do you? If you are trying to get her to be engaged and you, you, you send another man, a, a best buddy who might perhaps even like her or something. You don't do that. In matters of marriage, you go yourself. Uh, in matters of marriage, you go yourself. Because in matters of love, you ask people personally for their commitment. And in the same way here, we see Jesus is not sending a middleman to Judas. Jesus is giving his full heart to Judas directly. He is calling, we are told in verse 13, and he went up on the mountain, and he's calling Judas to him because he desires Judas. Jesus is giving his heart to Judas. He's saying, look, this is how much I love you, and I'm asking you in person. Be now, I'm calling you, I'm commanding you, so to speak, an authoritative call. Be my disciple. So that's the first thing we do. Jesus has called Judas personally. The other thing we notice here is that Jesus is opening his full life to Judas and the rest of the disciples. Let's read on verse 14. And he appointed the twelve, twelve, whom he also named apostles, sent ones. Why? 
so that they might be with him. We know how much people love us by how much they are willing to open up their life to us. We know that. If your husband has never allowed you to meet his parents or relatives, then you have reason to wonder whether you are his only one. You should be worried about that. In the same way here, we see that Jesus is not just calling Judas for a day to go out on a meal. Jesus is calling Judas to, to be with him for life. His whole full life. Judas will eat what Jesus eats. Go where Jesus goes. Meet Jesus' family. He will be sharing life with Jesus. Finally, the third thing is that Jesus offers, we see here, not just his full life to Judas, but he's offering his power to Judas and the rest of the disciples. Look at verse 14. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and do what? And have authority or power to cast out demons. People who truly embrace us invest in us to become better than we are, don't they? If a company hired you and then said, look, you can't have training, <laughs> okay? You, want us, you can work for us, but you can't have any more training then you know the company is not committed to you. It's not interested in you becoming better because it doesn't think you belong to the company. Well, in the same way here, we see that Jesus is not just choosing Judas to, 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 just to promise to, to, to be with him, not invest in him, or rather. We see that Jesus is choosing Judas to work in and through Judas, to invest in Judas, to empower him, to share his power with him. Why is Jesus doing that? Because he's committed to Judas for the long haul. Jesus loves Judas. He's fully committed to Judas. He's wholeheartedly embracing Judas. And you know what the good news of that is when you realize the choice of Judas? you realize what this embrace of Judas, this wholehearted embrace of Judas is how Jesus embraces each one of us who come to him. If you are a follower of Jesus, you come to him. If you are reaching out to Jesus, he embraces you like this, you see. He has given his heart to you. Jesus has not come to give you half of his heart. He has come to love you with all his heart. To give you all of himself to you. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says this in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us. And listen, and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We see Jesus fully embracing us on the cross by giving himself to us, by dying the death we deserve. And the Bible says that our rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden had inflicted on us an eternal death penalty that cuts us from God forever. But Jesus has come. He's paid the full price for your sin. 
You see, the wholehearted loving death of Jesus on the cross now enables us to go back to God and surrender our lives fully to Him and to experience that full embrace of God. And if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, Jesus has fully embraced you. You are His in Him. And this changes everything. Because maybe you are currently facing this morning protracted physical or mental illness. You are hoping for a change in your situation and nothing seems to be working. Or maybe you are a parent in a difficult family that is pushing you beyond limits. Your children might be pushing you beyond limits, I should say. Or your spouses might be pushing you beyond limits. And you are, you are struggling to cope, frankly. You are giving everything and you just can't cope. Or maybe you are currently looking for directions in your life. You want to know, how should you live going forward? What decision should you make about life? And you feel a certain sense of uncertainty over the future. And that's normal, but what makes it even worse is that you are calling out to Jesus and, and the door in heaven seems shut. You are asking Jesus for help, but somehow you don't seem to be getting much. And you, you are beginning to panic. You are beginning to be discouraged. And you may even be silently abandoning Jesus. All of us here Saturday have different situations. Where we are at the, at, the, at the bottom, as it were, at the end of the road. Well, whatever situation you are in, friends, I want you to take a look at Jesus here embracing Judas. Look how much he loves him. Look how much he opens up his heart to him. This is how much Jesus loves you in that situation. Whatever situation you are facing, this is how much he cares for you. Jesus is giving his heart fully to you. And if you are truly born again, then come to him. Come to him and, and ask him to strengthen you even more. Do not doubt his embrace. No matter how dark your circumstances are. Go to him. Give him your heart. Not half-heartedly, but full-heartedly. We need to do it full-heartedly. Why? Because all true followers of Jesus embrace Jesus wholeheartedly. We embrace Jesus wholeheartedly. Not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. And that is the second and final truth I want us to see in this passage. The first truth is that Jesus embraces his followers wholeheartedly. And true followers, true followers of Jesus embrace Jesus wholeheartedly. Let's go back to verse 19. Verse 19 says, And Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. I talked about the and before, but that and is also important because it does not just tell us that Jesus is wholeheartedly embracing Judas. It also tells us that initially Judas here has accepted Jesus. We mustn't miss that point or try and water it down. Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. The coming to him includes Judas. In fact, later on in Mark, when, when, Peter, when, when Peter asks, when the Lord talks about people's commitment, Peter said, we have left everything to follow you. 
When, when Peter says we have left everything to follow you, he's also including Judas. Judas is now following Jesus here, and like the others, he has left everything. And do you know what? Judas' name, Judas Iscariot, the time the name Iscariot actually comes from a town, Iscariot, where Judas comes from. He's the only outsider in this group, truly. We could have included him in the other sermon for different reasons. He lives outside Galilee, originally. And he has left his home. He's now following Jesus. He's come up on the mountain, as it were, and answered the call to follow Jesus. Now, we don't know what Judas has given up, but his past life has gone. In fact, Judas's past life has so far gone that he becomes so committed to Jesus at this point that when the time comes to pick the treasurer, of this new community of God, guess who they pick? Judas. The outsider, even. They pick him. John 13, verse 29, you can look it up. He becomes the treasurer. In other words, when all the disciples look for the most trusted person they could find, they don't think of Peter. No, no, no. We want Judas. He's the man we trust. In other words, what I'm trying to get at is that Judas has embraced the call to follow Jesus. But there is a big but, isn't it, in verse 19. Sadly, that is not the end of his story. Because Mark tells us that Judas never finishes the race. Look at verse 19. And Judas is carried, who did what? Who betrayed him. Now, we don't know when it began. But somewhere along the lines, a different Judas begins to emerge from the one who starts following Jesus in verse 19. Uh, The Apostle John, looking back after the betrayal of Jesus by Judas, tells us that Judas started stealing money from Jesus' ministries, so to speak. He started stealing money. John 12, verse 1 to 7, tells about how Judas started stealing money while following Jesus. And it seems from that moment on, or perhaps before that, it became downhill ever since. And the tragic steps of Judas descending in complete unbelief is taught to us in Mark 14. In Mark 14, verse 1 to 2, if you flick over a few pages, we read this about Judas. In Mark 14, verse 1 to 2, it says this, And it was now two days before the Passover, and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. That is Jesus. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar for the, from the people. They want to find a way to arrest Jesus, to put an end. Just the Herodians and the Pharisees are planning, remember, from Mark 3. And now the third plan is culminating in Mark 14. Let's read on from verse 10 to 11. They want to help. Verse 10 to 11 tells us this of Mark 14. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought, that is Judas, an opportunity to betray him. Then we jump to verse 43 to, and, and 46. And immediately while he was still speaking, verse 43, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs. 
from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, that is Judas, had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under God. And when he came, that is Judas, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him, that is Jesus, and seized him. Even though Jesus had given himself wholeheartedly to Judas, in the end, Judas proved that he had never truly surrendered to his heart to Jesus. We must understand this, that it's not that Judas is a good man who became bad. It is that Judas, though he answered the call, he answered it half-heartedly. And so we see that while other disciples, the 11, grew in their love for Jesus, as they spent more and more time with Jesus, Judas became more and more distant from Jesus. It's like two points that were just diverging. From the outside, actually, everything looked okay to even be appointed a treasurer. But inside him, as we said this morning, there was a secret opposition to Jesus. His heart had not been won for Christ. And it's interesting that Mark puts this very early in Mark chapter 3 because he's reminding us that following Jesus is not a matter of knowing facts about Jesus. It's about receiving a new heart transplant from Jesus. You do not just get a new heart from Jesus. God now plugs in a new heart into you. The very life of God now flows in your veins. You now live and move in God, so to speak. You are in God, and God lives in you. That is what it means to have true conversion. Somebody asked my wife a couple, last year, so what does the pastor mean by conversion? And I didn't explain it clearly very well. I don't explain it. Conversion is simply this. God cracks open your chest, removes your current dead heart, corroded by sin and filth, and replaces it with his own heart. It is A heart transplant. It is being born again. And then you are plugged to the very life of God. And the Spirit now begins to work in you to change, to transform you every day into the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are truly converted every day, the goodness of Jesus is increasingly replacing your moral field. Each passing week, the love of Jesus is becoming your love. Each month that passes, his desires are becoming your desires. Every year, the life of God flows with increasing intensity through your spiritual veins. That's what happens to those who are truly converted. Yet, yes, rather I should say, you will still sin from time to time. Indeed, you, as you grow to become more like Christ, you Saints, you'll be overwhelmed with this, your sinfulness. There is a sense in which you feel more sinful now the more you get closer to Christ than you have ever felt. And yet, if you're truly converted, you can look back like John Newton. You can say with John Newton, I am not what I should be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. All true followers of Jesus know something of this experience. They are growing in wholehearted embrace of Jesus. So the question I want to ask you this morning is this. Does this describe your life? 
You need to ask yourself this question seriously because you see Judas here is proof that on everyone who says they follow Jesus is truly following Jesus. Judas is proof that right in this room here we have two different camps. We have two groups of people in two different camps. One group of people are with Jesus and one with Judas. And it's nothing to do with church membership. I'm not talking about that. Or baptism. Or even what you feel. These camps are eternal camps, so to speak. They are not defined by me. One with Judas. Sorry to point this way. <laughs> and one with Jesus. Right? Or one with Jesus. Or one with Judas or whatever. Everybody. You, you, one, you fit in one or two camps. And you have to ask yourself, which camp are you in? You need to ask yourself that because, you see, being a true follower of Jesus is not a matter of saying you're a Christian. As I said, it is a matter of the heart. Does Jesus have your heart? You've got to ask yourself that. Or I have to ask myself that. You attend church regularly. But have you truly surrendered to Jesus? You have said the sinner's prayer. But do you and Jesus share the same desires? You have been baptized. But is there a deep and growing desire to become like Jesus? Do you long to become like him more and more? You are a church member. As I like to say, you speak Christianese very well. You sound like a follower of Jesus. But do you tremble at your sin? Are you growing and trembling at it? Does sin grieve you? You say a lot about the love of Jesus and you, you may even share it with others. But are you growing in loving his people? We had a very interesting discussion on Thursday. How do we know those who truly love Jesus? That was a very interesting question. And we said, First John tells us, that if we cannot love other people, people we see, how can we say we love God? Do you see that vertical relationship changes the horizontal? So you may say you're a believer, but you love Jesus, but do you love his people? If you don't, I'm afraid, it's a big question. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, we should be clear, that we are, I'm not saying we are saved by faith plus works. I'm not saying that. We should be clear that we are saved by faith alone. But the true faith that saves is never alone faith. We are saved by faith alone. But faith that is true is never alone. It is always accompanied with the fruits, isn't it? That shows that we have been changed. So you have to ask yourself this question. Because if the answer is no to them, then simply you look from the outside that you belong to Jesus. But inside your heart, there's a secret opposition to him. Underneath, you are Judas. Your heart has not truly surrendered to Jesus. To be blunt, you are not converted yet, regardless of your spiritual history. And beloved, that is a heartbreaking situation for any of us to be in. Uh, it is heartbreaking because God 
is reaching out to you this morning from the chasm of, across the chasm of sin, I should say, by the death of Christ. But you are refusing to come to him. Like Judas, you bury within yourself that secret opposition to Jesus. That is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking because you hear the Bible preached every day here. And in eternity, what you have heard here will be preached back to you forever, I think. The truth you rejected. It is heartbreaking because, you see, the almighty God who left the glories of heaven has now set his face against you because you refused to come to him and therefore you are forever condemned to eternal destruction. Unless you repent. So this morning I plead with you to put your full trust in Jesus. No tick boxes. No empty religion. No one step in the church and one step in the world. Come to Jesus and lay your life down before him. Be born again. And when you do that, you'll be a true follower of Jesus. A wholehearted believer. And I know some of you have examined your heart and you know that, yes, you can say with John Newton, you desire the Lord more. You've examined yourself and you believe that you're truly in Jesus and you're longing to, be, to follow him more. My encouragement to you from this verse, Mark chapter 3 verse 19, is simply this. Go on surrendering to Jesus. Don't stop. Keep on surrendering to him. If you have people in your life you avoid because they have hurt you in the past, you must forgive them now for Jesus. Are you constantly gossiping and bad-mouthing others? You must stop and change your friends. Are you lazy? Well, quit watching TV all day and do something for God. Live for Him. Are you struggling with lust, sexual lust? Repent now, friend, if you're truly converted. Repent now. No ifs and buts. Cut the sin off. Are you converted by you disobeying Jesus' command to be baptized? That's a disobedience. That's a sin to refuse to be baptized if you are converted. Because Jesus commands you to be baptized. Well, be baptized now. Are you a Christian and you are baptized? And yet you're refusing to commit yourself to the assembly of God's people in a tangible, sacrificial way as Jesus committed himself to the twelve. Then commit yourself, brethren. Commit yourself to them. And work to build God's kingdom wherever God calls you to commit. Because not doing that is a sin against God. Because God wants us to be part and invest our lives in the local church and build it up. Whatever that church may be, anywhere here outside, just live for Jesus. Jesus is not only in this church. He's not even only in this building. He lives in our hearts. So wherever God leads you, commit yourself to that. No ifs, no buts. Don't hold secret opposition in any area of your lives. If you are truly converted, friends, you have no greater motivation to live for God than the fact that Jesus embraces us wholeheartedly. And the fact that you have seen Jesus do it, you read it in the Word, on the cross, Jesus gave himself up for you. 
The cross is the motivation for you, friend, to live for him. Now, I cannot resist ending this sermon without quoting my favorite Puritan, Stephen Shannon. A quote which I hope you are getting tired of hearing, which is good. Because Shannon says this to us about all of these things. He says we should see no charms in sin which may not be overcome by that ravishing love which bubbles up in every drop of the Redeemer's blood. Can we, with lively thoughts of this, sin against so much tenderness, so much compassion and grace, which sounds so loudly in our ears from the cross of Jesus? Shall we consider him hanging there, who delivered us from hell, and yet retain any spirit to walk in a way which leads us to hell? Can we take any pleasure in which, in that which procured so much pain to our best friend? Shannok is saying, how can you love sin which crushed our Lord if you truly belong to Jesus? And then he ends and says, for lack of study of Christ crucified, we walk on in sin. The point is clear then. It always is from Shannon. In Jesus we have a God who embraces us wholeheartedly by his cross. He pours out his grace to the half-hearted. And if we are truly his followers, we must embrace him also wholeheartedly. He loves you wholeheartedly. And if you truly belong to him, love him wholeheartedly. Amen.